Welcome to Crossroads Church in Rowlett. We're so glad you're here. Join us here for our weekly sermons or visit crossroadsrowlett.org for more information. Real quick, how many of you guys had pie this morning? Man, that is delicious. Thank you to all you guys who did that. Now, I want to say this because uh, some of y'all know this about me, some of you don't, um, but I, you know, I've been here for the last eight years, but I spent 15 years of my ministry working with students. Um, teenagers love teenagers. Matter of fact, if you're a teenager or if you're a person in this room that works with teenagers, we want right now just to tell you thank you for who you are, and right now, let's show some love to that group of people. So a lot of years I spent doing that, and when you do student ministry, you get to do all kinds of crazy things. And one of the things that I used to love to go do is I used to go take my group of kids whitewater rafting. When we were up in Kentucky, we'd go down to Tennessee, and we would go to these amazing rapids, and it was awesome. If you've never been rafting, uh, they call everything like, uh, you know, the, the devil's armpit or whatever. Like, it's everything. All the rapids have cool names and stuff. And so um, I've told this story before, but it's just one of my favorites. Um, we were going, and uh, on the way there on the bus, all the kids start having a conversation. Who's going to be in what raft? And everybody starts picking. And there's one group of people that nobody ever wanted to ride with, and that is the middle school boys. Um, they're, they're unique. They smell uniquely. Uh, like all of it is, you know, if you're a middle school boy, I just want you to know I love you. And so um, we would always do that. And even our workers would like go want to ride with everybody else. And I would always go, okay, I'll ride with the middle school boys. And so the next thing that would happen was you get off the bus and everybody's trying to get rafts and you're trying to figure out like who's the coolest guide because you want to make sure you're in the boat with the coolest guide. Well, everybody else was getting all these cool guides and the middle school boys were in a boat where there was nobody. And then eventually there was this guy who came out of like a shack type thing and he, he was shredded. His arms were massive. And we found out he was in charge and he took the leftover boat, which was the middle school boys boat where I was going to be. And he looked at me, he goes, hey, I'm going to need you up front. And I was like, no, no problem. So they go through safety training. They tell us all kind of stuff about how to do uh, whitewater rafting correctly. If you fall out of the boat, they tell you put your butt down and your feet forward um, because that's the best way. You, if you get hit rocks, take impact, you'll be fine. Everything will be good. They also tell us how to rescue somebody if they go over uh, the edge. And the way you do that, because they're all wearing life vests, is believe it or not, you dunk them in the water um, because then the buoyancy of the life vest will help you pull them up into the boat. So they train us on this. We're like, okay, got it. We hope we don't need it, but we got it. And so we go, and we're going through all the rapids, and eventually we're coming up to one, and our, our God was amazing. Like, in, in minutes, he had us, like, operating with, like, military precision. Me and the middle school boys, he's barking commands. We're doing all kind of crazy maneuvers in our boat. It was spectacular. Well, ahead of us was a group of girls, and they hit a rapid, and when they hit this certain rapid, uh, their boat hit just in a way that the back of their boat shot, I mean, it must have been six feet in the air. And we watched one little girl go... <whistles> And we were like, oh, man. So their boat goes over to them, and they're trying to get this girl. And as they're trying to get this girl, they, they get over to her, and this other little girl on the side of the boat is, like, trying to get her in the boat. And so she does exactly what she was trained to do. She dunks her friend in the water, and she pulls up, but she's heavier than she thought she was going to be. And she didn't make it. So she's holding right here, and she doesn't know what to do. So she dunks her again. <laughs> and she pulls up, and she still can't. And so she's just, like, plunging... <laughs> just plunging this girl, it, just waterboarding this poor little girl who is already in distress, and she can't get to her. And finally, we hear our guide go, oars in, boys. And we're like, whew, and we pulled our oars in. And with one paddle, I don't know if it was one, but it felt like one, he with his giant arms, he went, whew, and the front end of our boat came up off the water. 
There was a wake behind our boat that was so big you could ski on it. We were being guided by the Incredible Hulk. It was the most amazing experience. And I'm at the front of the boat, and he's got me aimed directly at her. And I was like, he knows. He's, he's setting me up for a rescue. And so I'm like, same page. We got this. And so I'm there, and I'm like, okay, here we go. Here we go. He, he knows me. He knows I got this. He's seen these guns. Like, I got this. And right as we get right up next to this other boat, he does a maneuver with his oar. He swings the boat around. He jumps out of our boat into their boat, grabs the girl, pulls her onto their boat, jumps back onto our boat, does a maneuver with the oar again, and swings us back straight. And we all went. <laughs> Who is this man that even the wind and seas obey him? We were in awe. Everybody that saw it was like, did you see that? People that didn't see it were like, I got I to know about it. And so something happened that never happens. All the middle school boys at the end of it get back on the bus, and everybody wants to sit next to a middle school boy. <laughs> Tell us about this man. This man who commands the waves. Tell us the story. And they captivated this group of people. Why? Because they were involved with a rescuer. And at the end of the day, they couldn't help but tell the story of his rescuing work. That is the story of Jonah. If you haven't been along with us, it is a story of God inviting us into his rescuing work. In Jonah chapter 1, God says, Jonah, I want you to come and I want you to get and go with me to Nineveh. We're going to rescue some people. And Jonah says, nope. And he runs from God, and in his disobedience, he gets thrown into the waters off of a boat, and as he is thrown there, God in his mercy sends a fish, and he has a moment for three days in a fish where he confesses, and he gets right with God. And then God is going to do something amazing with Jonah at the end of chapter 2. He takes that fish and goes all the way back to the coast of Nineveh and vomits him back up on the shore. And so now in chapter 3, this guy who has been called and ran and resisted is rescued from the waves and is thrown up on the shore of Nineveh ready to be a part of God's saving work. And so that's where we're going to pick up today. Just a little bit different than what we do. A lot of our messages, we're going to go verse by verse through a lot of things, and I'll share some stuff as we go. If you've got notes in your handout or online, you can follow along, but we're going to look at chapter 3, starting in verse 1. It says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. And I would just encourage you, circle or highlight or underline just the idea of a second time. I love that. How many people in here need more than one chance? I love that. And God is not the God. Listen, I say this to people all the time. God is not the God of second chances. He is the God of new beginnings. He's going to give you a ton of chances at a new, and he's going to give you a new life. It's going to be amazing. Every one of us has done things that we're not proud of, and God is in the rescuing business. I shared this story in the first service. If you don't know the story of a guy named Brian, his nickname is Head, Brian Head Welch. He was the lead guitarist for a band called Korn, and in the 90, late 90s and the early 2000s, he was, and this was a quote written about from a parenting group, he was the terror of parents. He was strung out on meth, he was destroying his life, and he was terrified because he had a daughter, and he would often, because he was high, pull his daughter into dangerous situations that he thought might get her killed. And he didn't know how to get out of the life that he was in, and one day he was driving along and listening to another band that he liked called Nine Inch Nails. Nine Inch Nails, by the way, not a Christian band, in case you're looking that up later. But in the bridge of one of their songs, they have this line, bow down before the one you serve, you're going to get what you deserve. And it stopped him dead in his tracks. 
He realized that the things he was pursuing, the things he was chasing, it was not going to end in a good way, and it was destroying his life. And of all people, his realtor told him about Jesus. This is a quote from him. He says, I was a complete empty shell, nothing inside. I had everything, but I was just empty, so empty. But as soon as I went to church, I felt the love for Jesus, and I was done with everything in the world because I was satisfied inside and got filled up. And now he is a part of God's saving work. God is still in the business of doing this today. If you follow the story of a lady named Kat Von D, she was a tattoo artist and an occult worshiper, and God has radically transformed her life. Uh, Snoop Dogg put out a gospel album. Get your head around that for a minute. As a matter of fact, this weekend, Snoop became famous for another thing. Believe it or not, a couple years ago, he claims to become a Christian, and now he has said he is giving up weed. That made, listen, some of y'all are like, that's the biggest miracle I've heard in a long time. <laughs> like, that is huge. If you don't know nothing about Snoop, there is two things you should know about him and his life. He was a rapper, and then weed. Like, those are the two things synonymous with Snoop. A matter of fact, it was because he said he gave it up, there was a pastor and author named Ed Stetzer who had the, the tweet of the day yesterday. He said, for the first time ever, Snoop and I will both be smoking the same amount of weed. <laughs> Zero. But here's what I want you to get from all this. There are often, for us as people, there are people that we look at and what we see in them is we see them as the problem. And the same people we see as the problem, Jesus sees as a potential instrument of grace for other people. And we don't need to ever miss that God is in a rescuing mission, and he can rescue and use anyone. Chapter 3, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. If that sounds familiar, because you've been here for the series, you know in Jonah, in, uh, uh, Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, it's the exact same sentence, same words, same sentence structure. Anybody in here ever needed a mulligan in life? If you're not a golfer, a do-over. That is exactly what's happening right here. And that's good news for us because we need one, don't we, church? There's a lot of people in here who said, I'd love to have a second chance, right? You'd love to have a second chance with one of your kids. Love to have a second chance at a financial decision or a series of financial decisions that wrecked your life. Love to have a second chance at the marriage and the divorce that honestly maybe you sit and the thing you wrestle with is that you realize you are the one that was at fault for most of what happened. An opportunity you let slip through your fingers. A job that you were fired from. You may not love to have a second chance. Well, God, and this is important, God wants Jonah to understand that the mercy God is bringing into this story is not just mercy for Nineveh. It's mercy for Jonah. And what God's calling you to, he wants you to know that he's not just calling you to bring mercy to those people. He's reminding you that there is mercy for you. And that, well, I don't know about you, but that's good news to me. Chapter, chapter 3, verse 2 says, Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach the message that I tell you. Call, some translations will literally say, call out against it. Call out against Nineveh. Verse 3, And Jonah got up and he went to Nineveh according to the Lord's command. Now Nineveh was an extremely great city, a three-day walk. What he's saying is that it took three days to walk through the city. So let's get a little bit kind of Bible nerdy here for a minute. Uh, Nineveh, when he says it takes three days to walk through the city, a day's journey is about 18 miles, so three days would be about 54 miles to walk through the city. And that Nineveh was simply not that big. 
Uh, Nineveh uh, was, it was more like this. It was like there's Nineveh and then there's the surrounding area. Like, for example, if you're talking to somebody around here and they go, where are you from? You're like, ah, I live in Rowlett, or I live in Rockwell, I live in Saxe, I live in Wiley, I live in Garland. But if you go up north and you're hanging out with somebody from a different state and they go, where are you from? We all go, uh, we're from? Because we lie, right? Uh, <laughs> It's just simpler because they've probably heard of Dallas. And so that's kind of what's going on here. You have Nineveh proper, but then you have these surrounding suburbs, and he's walking through all of it, delivering the message. Nineveh is in modern-day Iraq, and at the time, it was the capital of Assyria. So these are Assyrian people. It was the most powerful city in the known world. They had an exterior wall to their city that was 50 feet wide and 100 feet tall. It was designed to be imposing, and to let their enemies know that they had power and influence. They were known for the monuments, gardens, and libraries that made up their city. They were a city of sexual brokenness and violence. As a matter of fact, this is a historian's quote of Nineveh. The historian said, It is the cruelest, vilest, most powerful, most idolatrous empire in the world. One of their own leaders, a guy named Asherah, excuse me, Asher Nasparal II, one of the, the leaders of Assyria, this is what he said about his enemies. I slaughtered them with their blood. I dyed the mountains red like wool. The heads of their warriors I cut and formed into a pillar. When he talked about conquering the leaders of opposing cities and peoples, he would say this, I filleted them and spread their skins upon the wall. Nahum, who is a prophet in the Old Testament, it's a book in your Bible, he refers to Nineveh as the city of blood. Not only that, they were arrogant people. Imagine that you're an archaeologist, a paleontologist, you're, you're like digging into the earth, and, and one day you uncover a tablet, and it's from the Assyrian people, from Nineveh, and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to translate this, I'll unlock the wisdom of the ages. And what you read is this, direct quote when translated, I am powerful. I am all-powerful. I am a hero. I am gigantic. I am colossal. I am honored. I am magnified. I am without equal. You get the idea. This was one of their leaders talking about himself. Ever met anybody that was full of themselves? If they're here, don't point at them. This is what's going on here. They love themselves. They're arrogant. And there's a, a racial undertone that is happening in, in, in the story of Nineveh that I want you to understand because he's asking him to go to a different group of people, a different race of people. You've got God sending a Jewish prophet with a message of mercy to a violent, arrogant, pagan, Gentile nation that has been oppressing them which teaches us something, because God is going, I'm going to send you to Hamas, I'm going to send you to ISIS, I'm going to send you to the 1920s, to Stalin's regime in Russia, I'm going to send you to Nazi Germany in the 1940s. What he's telling us is this, that there is not a people group that has a monopoly on God's mercy. God has a desire to save every person, and this is who God sends Jonah to. Why? Because God loves messed up people. Raise your hand if that's good news for you. Listen, we say it all the time. We're a bunch of jacked up people in this church. We're not better than anybody. We're saved. We're saved by God's grace, not by our doing. God loves messed up people. These may be some challenging things to get in our head, but this is the heart of God. He is not just for the oppressed. He is actually for the oppressor. He wants to reach the oppressor with his mercy. His heart breaks for the broken. His heart also seeks the shameful. So if your heart is going to beat in rhythm with God's, you have to know that that is the heartbeat of God. There are lots of people that we are willing to dismiss and avoid with the gospel, but God is not willing to dismiss those same people. He wants to rescue them. He wants to change them. 
You can write this in your notes. The grace of God is powerful enough to save anybody, and the heart of God is compassionate enough to want to. And that's what our heart has to be. God cares about messed up people, and he will send us to them. I've shared this before, but I was in student ministry. When I was coming up, I had a mentor, and he was always great. He gave me advice on everything, and I started speaking at, like, youth events and doing all these things where I I was going into these, like, events and camps, and he would say, hey, if there's going to be a meal, if you're at a camp or disciple now, whatever, he would go, when you walk in the room, every kid's going to want to sit with you. Every leader's going to want to sit with you because you're the speaker. And he said, when you walk in, ask God, God, give me eyes for the person that needs me to sit with them the most. And the first thing that I thought, his name was Mark, was I was like, Mark, that's how we met. I recognized God had sent him to come sit with me. And it impacted my life. It's amazing you go do that and you have a bunch of youth leaders from other churches and people you've never met come up and go, how'd you know? I didn't. I didn't know that God needed me to come sit with this kid, but God did. And God has a way of sending us to those who are in need. He moves us to the hurting. It's part of Crystal and I's story, to be honest with you, of why we came to Crossroads. There's a million reasons we came to Crossroads because we love this place and we love the people and the people that were here when we got here. Just absolutely God connected our hearts and we knew we had to serve together. Can I tell you another reason that God called us here? We're from Texas, but we were living in Ohio. Our church was uh, a great church there and we miss it. Um, We have a lot of great friendships there to this day. But one of the burdens we had is, I don't know if you know this about the Bible Belt, but there's an awful lot of people in the Bible Belt in Texas. If the the Bible Belt is the southern U.S., then Texas is the belt buckle of the Bible Belt. And here, there is a lot of religiously lost people that pack into churches every single Sunday. They know enough about Jesus to speak the lingo, to say amen and hallelujah at the right moments. They know when to stand and they know when to sit, but they don't have any relationship with Jesus Christ and he's never changed anything in their life yet. But it's something they do. We're supposed to go to church on Sunday. And as much as I love that you feel the need to be here, more importantly than simply getting up and checking a box on your to-do list, God wants to radically transform your life. And we knew that was the case. And so for us, it's been a joy. We have got to be here and joyfully be, a, joyfully be a part of what God has been doing for the last over eight years. There's a reason that over 500 people have been baptized in that time in this church, almost 600 now, to be honest, in that span of time. It's because people like you have been willing to share the gospel with a lot of people. And people like you have gotten real about having a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so I'm so grateful for that. See, God has Jonah's unreserved yes And he wants the same thing from you. There are two kinds of people that have an unreserved yes in your life. And the first one is your authority. Like whoever has an ultimate authority in your life. Like I don't know if you've ever encountered a kid like this, but when I was a youth pastor, we had a kid that was at a lock-in one time, and he would not behave for anyone. It didn't matter who went to him, one of the youth workers, he would look and literally say, you can't tell me what to do. Did not respect their authority. I had to go, hey man, can you please like knock it off? No, you can't tell me what to do. Fine. We struggled through most of the night, and finally I went to him about 2 in the morning, and I said, bro, we got to call your mom. And he went, I'll do whatever you need. <laughs> what, what is it? What do you need me to do? I'll do that. Because we found out there was an authority in his life. He may not respect my authority, the youth worker's authority. He may not have respected police officers, teachers, anybody else, but mama had his unreserved yes because she was an authority in his life. Your authority gets your attention and gets your yes, but also the one that you love gets your yes. And you find out 
out when you go into all kinds of places and all kinds of spaces. If you've ever been like a college person, you're a college guy and you live with a bunch of other college guys in a dorm, and then you're, you're used to a certain look and everything from the guys you, like they don't put clothes in dressers, they just pick stuff up off the ground. And they wear that, and they have a certain kind of uh, look and everything. If your friend in college walks out wearing a cardigan and smelling good, you immediately are like, first off, where did you get a cardigan? (laughs) Second, what's her name? Because you know somebody has hit the love meter, and it's gone up in their life, and so they're getting a yes to some other things. The same is true in other relationships. I remember my buddy Tom in Ohio. He said, Jason, do you want to go run a marathon? And my, my insides said, no. But out of my mouth, yes. And I trained and ran and hated him for 26.2 miles. And then we did it six other times. Because I love my friend, my brother, and he had my yes. Jonah had seen God's authority on the waters. He had seen God's authority under the waves. He had experienced God's love to rescue him in the very mess that he made. God had Jonah's yes because he was Jonah's authority and his love. So let me just ask you, and this is a challenging question for us, if God doesn't have your unreserved yes, and please hold on to that thought because it's going to come in real important at the end of this message. If God doesn't have your unreserved yes, maybe it's because you don't respect his authority or you have never really rested in his love. You've never really trusted him. Just hold on to that thought. Let's move on. God's mercy is going to send you to Nineveh. I don't know where that is for you. I'm not saying God's going to send you into your greatest temptation. That's not a wise thing for you. I'm going to say he's going to send you into your greatest need. He's going to send you to that coworker that you don't want to deal with, that neighbor that annoys you, that group of people that you'd rather have nothing to do with, that family member that you are not looking forward to seeing next Thursday. In that moment, can we be reminded that there is nobody too far gone and God may be sending you to them? In verse 4, it says this, Jonah set out on the first day to walk around the city and proclaim, in 40 days, Nineveh will be demolished. He's coming in hot. This is not a seeker-sensitive message. You're all going to die. That's what he said. You might go, well, that's not compassionate, but it is. Please make note of this. When God announces judgment, it is because judgment is the last thing God wants to do. That's why he's firing a warning shot. He's giving you a chance to change. When I was a kid, we would go to the store. Now, I'm, I'm over 40, so if you're an over 40 crowd, you know what I mean by this. If you are in your 20s or younger, you think that shopping is where they put toys for you to play with. You, like malls are designed for your entertainment. When we were kids... Nobody cared about our entertainment. They didn't build stores for children. We had no money. So they built stores for parents. And so you weren't allowed to do anything. So when we would walk into a store, my mama would give us a speech. Your mama gave you the same speech if you're my generation of people. And that was that mom would look at you and she would say, when we go in here, do not touch anything 
And we'd go, yes, ma'am, me and my brother Eric, we'd be walking through there. We're not doing anything. We're good. We were perfect. For a minute, for a minute. And then eventually we start messing with each other. We're like, don't touch me, you touch me, he's touch me, he's touch me. And we do a lot of, and then eventually we got tired of messing with each other and we start grabbing stuff and touching stuff. And we're doing exactly what my mom told us not to do. And then mom would stop and preach a three-word sermon to us. Keep it up. Keep it up. And it was a message of judgment and mercy. <laughs> judgment because if you do not stop touching stuff and each other, I will kill you. <laughs> but you've got a moment where if you can autocorrect your decisions in life, you get to live. <laughs> this message that Jonah is preaching is a keep it up sermon to the entire nation of Nineveh. It is God's judgment and mercy. Judgment, keep it up and you will be destroyed. Mercy, you have 40 days. Turn from what you're doing. Turn. If you want to know God's heart towards the ungodly, I want you to go to Ezekiel 33, 11, speaking through another prophet. This is what it says. Tell them, this is God's message. As I live, this is a declaration of the Lord God. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked person should turn from his ways and live. Repent. Repent of your evil ways. So sometimes... God sends a Jonah. Sometimes God sends us to speak and say uncomfortable things in people's life. And it is not because we do not love them. It is precisely because we do that we tell them. God is begging you to turn to save your life because he loves you. Verse 5, it says, And the people of Nineveh believed God. This blows my mind. The people of Nineveh believed God. They proclaimed a fast and dressed in sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least. You know what that means? Is that they went, listen, nobody is exempt from this. In our entire nation, every one of us, for, or the, the words we would say it in modern day, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every one of us has screwed this up. Every one of us, we're all in trouble. Here's the irony that I find in this. Is that for the man of God in this story, Jonah, for God to get him to repent and do the right thing, he has to send a storm and a giant fish and throw him up in another country. For the Ninevites, it takes eight words. Maybe, maybe sometimes, the person we think is so far from God is a lot closer than we think. And the people we see as so close to God have begun to take him for granted and have not been changed by him as much as we need to be. Let's continue. 
Verse 6 through 10 is going to walk us through repentance. It's a beautiful picture. It says, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he got up from his throne, he took off his royal robes, he covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and then he issued a decree in Nineveh. By the order of the king and his nobles, no person or animal, herd or flock is to taste anything at all. They must not eat or drink water. Furthermore, both people and animals must be covered in sackcloth, and everyone must call out earnestly to God. Each must, and this is a word for repent, turn from his evil ways and from his wrongdoing. Who knows? God may turn and relent. He may see, uh, he may turn his, from his burning anger so that we will not perish. God saw their actions that they had, here's repent again, they had turned from their evil ways, so God relented from the disaster he had threatened them with, and he did not do it. On week one, we talked a lot about the word confession. I'm going to talk about a different word today, but let me help you with confession. Confession is a change of words. What confession means is, well, I'm saying that this is okay in my life. And what confession means is that I stop saying it's okay in my life, and I start saying the same thing God says about what I'm doing with my life. Confession literally means that Whatever it is that I'm dealing with in my life, whatever sin I am dealing with, I'm going to stop making excuses for it, and I'm going to say about my sin what God says about my sin. I'm agreeing with the truth of God about the sinfulness in my life. Confession is a change of words. Repentance is a change of actions. It's doing an about face in your life and going in a different direction to actively resist and move away from the things that God has told us not to do. And it's not a one-time thing. I will tell you repentance is a daily activity in the life of the believer. It's something we are always doing. Repentance is my response to God's mercy. I love this verse. You've heard me talk about it a lot if you've been here over the years, but in Romans 2, 4, it says, God's kindness, God's mercy leads us to repentance. That God shows us his mercy, he shows us his grace, he shows us his love, he shows us his forgiveness, and it's in seeing that that I go, I want to be different. And I actually turn my life as a result of that. It's not speaking condemnation and guilt into somebody's life. It's the kindness of God, the mercy of God that makes us go, I want to change and be like that God that loves me so much. That's my response. So if you show me anyone who can live full on in sin and it does not bother them, I will show you someone who does not yet understand the mercy of God in their life. God's kindness leads us to repentance. Listen, I want to tell you this. Guilt and condemnation will never change the fundamental structures of our heart, but mercy and grace will. It changes everything about us. And when it does, our response is repentance. Well, what is repentance? In these verses, it's going to give us the ingredients of repentance. I'm going to walk you through it. You see this first is they see the seriousness of sin. We talked about these people. They're Ninevites, but they're Assyrians. Romans popularized crucifixions. Assyrians invented it. They were such evil people that when they conquered a city, they would cut the heads off of one of the family members and make one or more other family members join a parade carrying the heads of their family. And their king recognizes we have committed evil in the sight of God. And he takes it serious. He says, oh, no. Listen, sometimes I don't think we understand how serious sin is. 
Sin is going to rip you away from the fundamental purpose of your life. Sin is what creates a chasm and a gap between every single one of us and God. Sin is the thing that draws us off mission and keeps others from experiencing the beauty and the grace of God. Sin is what destroys relationships. Sin is what wrecks us. And sometimes we're so quick to move to grace, we have not stopped to consider the seriousness of our sin. But the king is really understanding the seriousness of it. He is not trying to get comfortable with his sin. He wants obedience from his people to honor God. We have to take it seriously. But the second one is he gets off the throne of his life. Thrones were places of power. And the king's response to the mercy of God was that he got up off his throne. He said, there's a greater king, and it's not me. And I will submit to him, and he will be my Lord. In the 18th century, there was a missionary named David Bernard, and he was doing a ministry to a bunch of Native Americans. And in the process of doing his ministry, he was once preaching, and he was sharing the gospel, and there was a whole bunch of Native Americans there, including one chief. And as he's preaching the gospel, and he's talking about surrendering your life to Jesus, the chief, mid-sermon gets up and walks down and takes his headdress off. The headdress of these Indian chiefs, each feather represented accomplishments of their lives. And he laid it on the altar during the sermon and said, the chiefs submits his accomplishments to the Lord. And he walked back and he sat down. And David kept preaching. And a few minutes later, the king brought his horse to the altar. It's a very different setting than this. And the horse got down and he laid it there. That was a symbol of comfort. It was a symbol of prominence. It was also his transportation to get from one place to another. And he said, the chief submits his horse to the Lord. And he walked back and he sat down and David continued preaching. And then he got up. Again, the chief walked to the front. And he had nothing else. With tears in his eyes, the chief said, the chief has nothing else to bring So the chief gives himself to the Lord. That's what it looks like to get up off your throne. And let me tell you, if you're going to be off the throne of your life, it requires some activity from you on a daily basis. Because would you agree that you can, you can put Jesus on the throne of your life uh, in the morning, and, and by the time you get to work, you're climbing up in that chair? Let me tell you what that looks like in our life. The Bible tells us in Galatians to be full of the Holy Spirit. And so the way that looks for a lot of us is we get up in the morning and we have this time with the Lord and we pray. Maybe we even worship. I don't know how you are. Maybe you get, maybe, you're, maybe there's nobody else around in the house and you're dancing around just having a little good time, you and the Lord. And you, man, I'm so full. I'm full of the Holy Spirit. And that is an incredible thing. And then you leave and you've got this bucket. Okay, your life is this bucket filled with the Holy Spirit. And then you leave and immediately people start poking holes in your bucket. You go out and you get on the road and you get in traffic and somebody pops a hole in your bucket and the Holy Spirit starts to leak out. And then you get to work and you got and that coworker that you don't like, you gotta do a two hour meeting with them. Somebody pokes a hole in that bucket. And the person after one of your kids texts you, here's what I need. <laughs> and you find out that you and your spouse were in an argument you didn't know you were, you were having. <laughs> and you got holes in your bucket, holes in your bucket, and by lunchtime that sucker is empty and you climb back on the throne. When what we need to be doing is understanding that in order for God to be on the throne, that means that every moment of every day and every opportunity, I have to be actively working to fill my life with the Holy Spirit. And no matter how many holes go in there, I'm continuing to fill that bucket because I want him on the throne and not me. That's what's happening here. 
We have to get back down off that throne. Let me tell you the next thing he says, or the next thing he does, is he steps out of his old identity. And that's what we have to do, step out of my old identity. It says that the king took off his robe. It's a sentence we'd blow by, but it's not one you should blow by. A, a king's robe was an identity for them. They were the only ones that had these kind of, kind of royal garments. And the magnificence of the king's robe de like determined how much glory and honor you would give that king. And the, the better the robe, the better the king. And specifically, the indicator of the greatness of the king was the train of the, of the robe. How long the robe flowed determined the greatness of this king. Which is why, let me just connect some dots here for us, church. That's why in Isaiah, I believe it's in chapter 6, where God says that Isaiah got to see into the heavenly realms and he saw our God with his throne and with his robe. And it said the train of his robe filled the entire temple. It's a picture of us understanding the majesty and the bigness of our God. We need to take off our robe and put on the robe that says, I am in Christ. But the truth is, many of us walked in here even today wearing lesser robes of identification. That the robe we have on is identifying us in a different way. It's an identification of my achievements and my successes. And that's what I want to be known by. It's my relationship. And relationship's great, but when it becomes your identity, you have put it in an unhealthy place. For others, it's financial success. You're like, man, look at me. I've done really well. And, 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 and the trappings of all of that, which, listen, money can be good. It can be a joy. It can be a blessing. But when it becomes an identity, it will wreck you. For others, and this may, this may step on some toes. I just want to say this. Please hear my heart in this. For some, the identity they're wrapped in is their pain and their past. And I'm not saying your pain is not real. I'm not saying your past is not hurtful. But what I'm saying, when you have let your pain and your past become your identity instead of recognizing that it comes from the Prince of Peace, you have got your identity in the wrong place. There are so many people that put on the identity of victim that they have no idea what it, lives, what it looks like to live in victory. We need to take off those lesser robes. That means we don't have to deal with them. We need to deal with them in a healthy way. But take those on and put on the robe that says, I am who I am because of who I am in Christ. That's who I am. He takes off his robe. The last thing is, I just want to hit this, is he grieves his sin. They put on sackcloth and ash. And sackcloth, sackcloth was a, an uncomfortable fabric. It was itchy, and it was, it was not comfortable. It was this way of saying, we have let comfort drive us into a sinful state, and I am rejecting comfort in order to embrace my humility. And then ash was a reference to often when they would conquer a city, they would burn it to the ground, and the people that would weep and mourn there would take the, literally the ash of their destroyed life and family and city, and they would wipe it on themselves as an act of mourning. It meant being torn down. It meant being broken down. There was a pastor, I don't know who the pastor is, but this quote blew me away that, uh, as I was getting ready for this this week. He says, we in church should never preach grace to the absence of tears. That often we want to embrace the joy of our grace and mercy and forgiveness, but we have not stopped to recognize the grief that our sin should cause. Our sin did damage. And we will fully embrace the beauty of the gospel when we understand the mess of our sin. See, God wants us broken. Please hear me. God wants us broken. He does not want us broken down. 
Those are not the same thing. I grew up on a farm when I was a kid with my grandpa. And every once in a while, we would have to break a horse. That is different than having a broke-down horse. A broke-down horse is going to go to a place called Elmer's next. Okay? But what would happen is a powerful animal would come in that had not been trained, and it was in disobedience and chaos. And when I would watch my grandpa break a horse, what he would do is he would take the power of that animal and teach it to come under to come under the control of its master. That's what being broken looks like. As a matter of fact, this may be a strange example, but I'll use it because I think it's a good one. Um, kill the lights for me. Now I know it's dark in here. Everybody's got their phones on, sorry. All your beautiful glowing faces. There we go, all right. Now, uh, you, you can't really see these things right now. I have glow sticks in my hand, but you can't see them. And the reason is because there's a chemical reaction that's supposed to happen on the inside that affects what it does on the outside. And so right now, you can't see anything. It's of no use to us. But if I took them and I bent them enough to break, now, raise your hand if you can see them. Well, I can't see your hands. Never mind. <laughs> we didn't destroy them. It was breaking them that allowed them to fulfill their purpose. This is what God wants for our lives. You can go ahead and turn the lights back on. Here you go. There's a quick Thanksgiving gift for you guys. There we go. All right, so stay with me here for a minute, church. This is what God does. He takes his people, and there is a breaking that happens. We see it with so many people in Scripture, in David, and Moses, and Ruth, and Jonah, and Jason, and you. It's not condemnation. It's recognizing the weight of our sin so that we are overwhelmed by mercy and can be used for the purpose that God intended our life all along. See, when I repent, I join in to what God is already doing. That's what repentance does. And here's something you may not know about Nineveh. Do you know that Nineveh, prior to Jonah getting there, had had two plagues hit it? The first one was an eclipse, and the second one was an earthquake, both of which they viewed in their religious customs as God being angry and judging them. They worshipped a fish god. Not an accident. God sent a dude... They got spit out of the mouth of a fish to preach to people who worshiped a fish and to tell them judgment is coming. But because of all the stuff that had already happened, they didn't resist it. They went, yep, that sounds about right. Because get this, God was ahead of Jonah. And God is ahead of what he's calling you to do too. We often think that when we respond to the call of God in our life, that we are the initiating action of God. You are never the initiating action of God. God is always ahead of you. God is moving ahead of you right now. He is simply waiting on your obedience so that you get to experience the blessing along the way. When we say no, we miss that incredible blessing that God wants for his people. I remember being in uh, 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 Princeton, Kentucky. I was preaching. I'm not Princeton, Kentucky. I was down in Livingston, Texas, and I'm preaching, and there was a guy in our church that I had written off. He would sit in every sermon. Some of you, if you're this person, I, I love you. I want you to know that. So always the guy who sits like this. 
And you go, well, what about during worship? Well, they go from this <laughs> to this. And I would preach around him. He scared me. He was a big dude. I thought he might, he might want to, like, kill me. And I would preach around him. So, like, if he was sitting there, I'd preach to these people and those people, and I would come back down to these people. And I'd go back up, and I would preach around him in little waves. Some are like, I didn't know preachers did that. No, pull back the curtain. Here we go. <laughs> he freaked me out. And I thought, man, God's not moving in that guy's life. I don't know if he'll ever get reached until one day he came up to me. It was only the second conversation we'd ever had. And he broke right in front of me. Started crying. And within the next few weeks, he was the most passionate worshiper in our church. I had no idea God was so far ahead of me. But it taught me an incredible lesson, and I hope it teaches you an incredible lesson. What could God do with your unreserved yes? If you simply believed God is ahead of me, so when God calls me, he is calling me to fertile soil. He is calling me to a moment of his Holy Spirit where things are happening. If you believed that for a minute, listen, Jonah shows up in Nineveh where God was already at work and it took eight words for an entire city to repent. Just, just, just hear me out for a minute. What if you had the audacity to believe? For those of you, if somebody's falling asleep next to you, nudge them just for a second. I know I've gone on long. Listen, just stay with me. If we had the audacity for a moment to believe that the next eight words of our life could be a game changer for somebody else. That the next action of our life could unlock a revival in a city. What if we had the guts to believe that? That is how I see God work all the way through Scripture. And can I tell you, at no point in Scripture does it ever say that ended. I believe God wants to do these kinds of things today. And he wants your unreserved yes to do them. Here's the last thing I want you to catch before we, we move on. God made Jonah's biggest embarrassment his source of ministry. This is one of the reasons I would tell you to can trust the Bible, because the Bible does not sanitize people's lives. You see the raw, messed up Jonah. And by the way, when you get to chapter 4, you're going to get to see more raw messed up Jonah. When I'm looking for counsel, when I'm struggling in my life, I look for people who have been through some stuff and experience the mercy of God. Like to me, one of the scariest people on the planet is a gifted person who hasn't gone through anything yet or a gifted person who did go through something and they were not broken and in awe of the mercy of God from it. And I've learned that I need counsel from somebody who has gone through it and they experienced the mercy of God and it's transformed their life and they speak into my life. It's why I can stand up here and be honest about my mistakes, my failures, my brokenness because I don't need you to see the perfection of Jason Collins. I just need you to see the perfect work of Jesus Christ. Just ask yourself in the middle of whatever you're doing, what if God is positioning you to be the best voice in someone else's life because of the struggle you're in today. I'm not saying that God is making sinful choices for you. What I will say is that in spite of your sin, God can find a way to use you anyway. God can make use of anything. Maybe your mess 
is God's mercy preparing you so that when you come out of it, it becomes your ministry. Maybe your pain becomes your platform. I've seen abused people minister powerfully to the abused. I've seen addicts uh, uh, come out and, uh, and be ministered to the addicted. I've seen the divorced come out and minister to those that are divorcing. We've seen it time and time and time again. But you got to give God your yes. Write this in in your notes, your last note. God loves to use messed up people to reach messed up people. And this is where I want to get into our challenge as we wrap up today. When we started this series, we gave you a card. It says, you are sin. It was blue and gold. You see on the back wall, there are a bunch of these things that are the same. And if you'll notice, if you didn't, haven't noticed, you'll see that there's a lot more people that have signed those things today. And that's because right now I want to challenge us as a church. First thing I want to ask you to do is just stand up right now. You guys set that back there for me. We're about to have an active moment of worship. We've asked you to think about, consider what God is calling you to specifically as an individual, as a couple. Over the next 12 to 18 months, what has God called you to do? Now, let me tell you what most people in a comfortable church would do. We're about to have a challenge, and they would just sit still. And maybe you'll sit still for a good reason, which is you don't know yet, and that's fine. But I think a lot of people in here already know the response they're supposed to have. And I'm going to ask for courage. I'm going to ask for the courage to get up out of your seat in a moment and go back to one of those boards and to write down what you feel called to. What it is that God is calling you to right now in this moment of your life. We know the big things God's calling us all to, but what specific calling has God placed on your heart? Where has he asked for your unreserved yes? And can you for a moment believe that he's ahead of you in this? And that whatever he's calling you to, he is already at work in so that when you get there, it's like the great Henry Blackaby once wrote, see where God is moving and get involved. And so I want to encourage you. We're about to sing a song called I've Witnessed It. This song talks about witnessing all the great moves of God. But can I just, let's just think about this for a minute. How many Christians only sing that aspirationally? How many Christians only sing like, I, 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 can't, I can't wait for a moment where I could witness it. God doesn't want you to sing it aspirationally. He, want you, he wants you to sing it realistically. But it means saying yes. And having the courage, I, this is my challenge, having the courage to go write it down so we can pray over it for you. So that you see your name when you come in for the next several weeks and you remember what God's calling you to. So we're going to sing a song called I've Witnessed It. I've witnessed his faithfulness. I've seen him breathe life again. While we sing, I'm going to ask you, worship? But I'm going to challenge you maybe to first move. Move to one of those four boards in the back while we sing and write down that calling. If you want to move even right now, you can begin. We're going to sing this together. And let's respond to God. Let's be faithful, be true, and respond. Come on.